0: Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. I am Brandon Laws, your host. Thank you so much for the download today. It's good to be with you. And uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit today. We have a topic on happiness in the workplace. I know a lot of us could use a topic like this. Uh, It's tough times for a lot of people, if not everybody and um, there's a lot of negativity out there. There are some positive messages going on out there. And I hope that, you know, an episode like this will get you to look more at the positive side of things and hopefully, you know, can make your workplace a little happier. So we brought on Nick Marks. He is the CEO and founder of Friday Pulse, a company that's really looking to make workplaces happier. So uh, Nick is a statistician by trade, and he somehow got into happiness and, you know, teaches people on it and uh, talks about it a lot. So we talk about the state of happiness right now in light of what's happening right now in the world, what drives our happiness, how do you measure it, and then what you can do to take that the data that you get from measuring the happiness and then build some action items around making people happier at work. So hope you love this episode. I know I did. Uh, Nick was was great. He also has a great TED Talk too. You should check that out. It's more on the policy side of happiness and what governments can do to make um, communities uh, happier. Uh, so this this uh, dovetails into it nicely a little bit. We didn't talk about the policy side at all, but really about what workplaces can do to to make employees happier and more engaged and all that. So hope you love it. Uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn or Instagram or any of those places that if you want to reach out and connect, I'd love it. And of course, go to Apple podcasts and give us your five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. Have a great day and be safe. Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you on.
1: Thanks so much for asking me, Brandon.
0: You study happiness. You talk about it a lot. You've got an organization that measures happiness. We're going to dive into all that. But I think where I wanted to start was we're in a crazy time. It's April 23rd right now. We're all, for most of us, we're locked down in our homes. What is the state of happiness right now? Oh, I would say very variable. This is landing
1: in people's lives in very different ways. And, you know, some people are undoubtedly really struggling. Some are struggling right from the beginning and some they've sort of absorbed it for three or four weeks and now it's hitting. So I think particularly if you've got young kids or you're looking after elders or you're sick or you've got someone that's sick, then it's really, really tough. Probably, I mean, I haven't got actual figures on it. Well, no, there are some figures in the UK. So there was a survey out which said that 15% of people are really struggling. With the lockdown, and then a third of 15% are having strong difficulties. But probably 40, 50% of the population are quite okay. I'm personally very okay. You know, I have a job I like, a wife I love, who I live with. So it's quite easy.
0: I share your sentiment on that, but I feel like a lot of people are probably not sharing that sentiment. Thus, and they're probably more unhappy than happy, and depressed and anxious. And you know, what's the causes of that? Is it their situation? Is it, uh, fear mongering from the media like what is it
1: well i think if you're prone to anxiety this is probably sort of perfect storm really because you know viruses are unseen they're sort of creepy difficult to understand we've made everyone frightened of each other because you're looking at other people thinking have they got it so the week before in london when i was in london still you know you really started to sort of see everything as dirty and difficult and, you know it's really creepy and of course, what's going on from a purely emotional perspective is fear and anxiety. And fear is an emotion, which is helping us avoid a threat. In that sense, people tend to either run away, which is a really valid way of trying to get rid of a threat, freeze, hope it doesn't find us. But neither of those two are really very good on this virus. So the third way that people do it is gather together and try and fight something together, which is what we're kind of doing, but we have to be socially distant. So there's all sorts of ways that the sort of emotional cues that we're getting are very different from the actions we can take, and that makes it very hard. And anxiety is very pervasive. And if you are someone that has traditionally been anxious or suffered from panic attacks or OCD or anything, then this is really, really tapping into difficult stuff. And so those people are suffering purely from that. And then I think we've got this second wave where people's circumstances have changed. So they've been made redundant or furloughed. That We've got a word in Britain we're using called furlough, which is temporary
0: Yep, we use that too.
1: Yeah, I hadn't heard of it before this crisis, but <laughs> you know, people have got made redundant or they're living at home with young kids who are becoming increasingly sort of stressed by the idea they can't see their friends, they can't get out to school, they can't do exercise very easily. So there's all this pent up energy. So I think there's a second wave coming now, which is like we've been here for four or five weeks and it's not getting better and suddenly that feels depressing. So there's different triggers going on.
0: I totally agree with that. I think yeah, people are probably getting stir crazy at this point and just need to get out and do something and see their friends or whatever. But, you know, like the four or five weeks that have, you know, when this all started and and we're stuck at home, I feel like something you said in your TED talk years ago about fear and how like, you know, media and organizations and even politicians and countries will use fear to try to motivate people. But you kind of I think you said something that really hit home. It was like, Well, most people aren't really motivated by fear. They're sort of the deer in the headlights, and they're paralyzed, and they can't really feel like they're like disempowered. And do you feel like that's more relevant today than any other time?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the media plays very much on fear and on anger, on negative emotions, because they're so powerful for us. They grab our attention the negative emotions. And the reason they do that is because from an evolutionary perspective, they're very much about our immediate survival. So you're normally immediately, fear is normally about immediate threat, anger, about an immediate transgression of a norm. So they're very, very, you know, they're part of the fight and flight mechanism and they rush us full of adrenaline and whatever to deal with the situation. But this sort of pervasive us that's not very good for, but the media really, I mean, they sell on bad news. And it's sort of because in our evolutionary past, yeah, that something bad happening could kill us straight away. Whereas if we miss something good, there'll probably be something tomorrow. So it's just got a sort of lower stakes for us. The positive signals that are out there. So it's quite hard. And I think the definite advice for mental health experts is consume less media. Make sure you don't listen to the news too much. Maybe do it once a day. Don't be on social media all the time, following all the bad news. You know. So and I think the people that are sort of turning inwards are turning to their sort of core relationships there. Partner they live with, if they're lucky enough to live with a partner or their core family, their core friends, maybe possibly having to do that remotely. But focusing on that is a really good response because they people you love and who love you and that can give you a lot more energy. So there are some strategies for it, but I think, yeah, it's a difficult time.
0: You're an expert in happiness and measuring it. And I'm curious in a time like this, and really any time, but is it a matter of just turning off the negativity? Or is it really focusing on what you're grateful for and in other positive inputs and things like that? What really drives happiness from your perspective?
1: All of us have slightly different happiness levels, or in the sense part of that is genetic and people that are more positive than others, and part of it is circumstantial. We've got varieties of circumstance, but when you've got those two as givens, then there's still choice to be made about the behaviors we do, the actions we take, and sometimes. If you want to be happier, you need to make different decisions and they can be decisions about connecting with other people and connecting people that are good for you. So disconnecting from people that are bad for you. You know, people who get themselves into real problems in life through addiction or other things like that, they actually need to edit their address book and just cut people out of their lives. Yeah. (laughs) We all know people like that. I mean, it's not been something I've suffered from, but I've got people that I love that have and they need to stop seeing some people to recover. But for most of us, it's about who do we reach out to that nourishes us. So that's relationships. But there are other things like physical activity is great for our mood. It's probably the fastest way out of a bad mood. And so, you know, if you are feeling anxious or stressed or overwhelmed, then, you know, getting outside, if you are allowed outside, but feeling the fresh air, feeling the sun in your face, if the sun's shining where you are, and doing stuff which moves your body. So even if you're sat down at your desk all day, you're working from home, Make sure you get up every hour, you stretch. Music's really great for this. Putting on some music dancing is great. So, that's a really, really good way and and very always
0: in our control. What led you down the path of studying happiness? Did you just kind of fall into it? Did you actually go to school for it? Like, how do you even get into studying happiness and having it become your profession? It was an accident. is really important. And there's a lot of really smart people who study happiness and talk about it. So I appreciate that you just fell into it randomly. <laughs> I am a statistician by trade. That
1: was my sort of skill, my academic strength. But my mother was a therapist. And so I got interested in therapy when I was in my 20s. I also got very interested in counter groups and men's groups. I didn't really know how to be a man in the world. I found be really quite misogynist. So I sort of was a bit struggling with that when I was young. And so I did quite a lot of things like that. And out of that I came as I trained as a therapist. And it's one of the best things I ever did. I didn't really work very long as a therapist. But the whole reflection part, the sort of self-learning development, the understanding about your emotions and where I came from and the sort of things I wanted to do, I think have stood me in really good stead. It started to influence my statistical career in that I moved from doing sort of health statistics and quality of life into well-being, and then latterly into happiness, but basically into people's experience, their subjective experience of life. And that was a sort of journey that sort of took place over a sort of 20-year period. And I really followed what I love doing, and I followed, in a way, what got successful. I mean, I started work at a think tank in London in 2001, and I was kind of the guy with slightly long hair in the corner who was a bit of a hippie (laughs) and talking about happiness. They thought I was mad, but when I started to publish they all took me seriously because it was very popular. <laughs> so, you know, it's partly you find what you're good at. You had that sensitivity to what's working.
0: Are there any authors or speakers, people who have studied happiness that came before you that really drove your interest in continuing to maybe build on their work or try something different in the topic of happiness?
1: I mean, I think there's a lot of great happiness researchers and there's a guy called Ed Dina who was the guy that founded the statistical approach to subjective well-being, really. And he's one of my sort of statistical heroes in that way because he had to take a lot of risk when he started out in the 70s. No one would give you funding, you know, he wanted to do the happiness of farmers in Missouri, I think, or something. And they said, well, you can't do that. So then he changed the title to the subjective well-being of farmers. And they went, okay, you can do that. <laughs> and There's a lot of people like that. So a lot of people before me, I mean, Richard Easterlin, who created Easterlin Paradox, was a great researcher, is a great researcher, he's still alive, I think. I'm kind of somewhat different than most of them because I'm very applied. I was always interested in the policy and then now in business. I do less research and much more create practical tools. And I think in that sense, I'm quite an unusual statistician in that way. And in a way, that's a learning from therapy in that a therapist is really a facilitator, a guide. I try not to be prescriptive. I try to really help other people, help the client, the person be the researcher. So I create the tools that help Them do it for themselves. That's what I'm trying to do with my work.
0: You mentioned that you focus on the policy side of happiness, but also working with businesses as well. I'm curious, like when businesses come to you, or maybe organizations, it could be nonprofits, but when they come to you, what is typically the issue? Or maybe there's not an issue. Maybe they just want to increase happiness or they want to know how to measure it. Like what's a typical reason they bring you in and what's kind of the first step in? trying to create a happier workforce could be a variety of reasons some are that they want to shout about the fact that they're a great
1: culture so they want to be <laughs> yeah it. i get that part of their recruitment policy they want to be saying look we take happiness seriously you know we use friday pulse to measure it or part of their supply chain you know they say or their clients are saying that we look after our employees our employee well-being is important to us we look after it so that's a great reason that they want to be advocates for it they do sometimes get a little disappointed that their scores aren't quite as high as they hope they mm. were but that's a different yeah, matter.
0: It's an opportunity to
1: improve it is and then we have clients that are trying to fix a cultural problem that they know that something that's got out of tune and one of the things that's sort of distinct about our platform is that we really try and support line managers in the process of creating culture across the organization we try and help line managers be better line managers by giving them data they can use and steers on how they can talk to their reports their team have better conversations with them so they're trying to be more consistent across the organization so often a senior leader will say we've got this and this type of culture we've got a great culture we've got this we've got that but actually i know from my data there's always lots of micro cultures there's hot and cold spots in every organization so that consistency is what Quite a lot of clients come to us for, and then you know, just recently, so like in the last four six weeks, you know, we've had quite a lot of people coming to us because they genuinely worried about their employees and what's happening to them and the morale. They're worried for themselves, but they're genuinely worried for their employees themselves, and they they want to explore having a tool that helps them with that in difficult circumstances.
0: Hey guys, it's Brandon here, your host of Transforming Workplace. And I wanted to say that today's episode is sponsored by PatLive. Did you know that 76% of customers hang up if they don't reach a live person? I mean, that's insane. And 85% of customers won't call back after an unanswered call. Stop forfeiting your business to your competitors because of missed calls. Pat Live offers 24 seven live answering services so you can spend less time following up and more time growing your business. And unlike many other live answering services, they're open 365 days a year. Their friendly and professional agents are all located in the United States and provide all the benefits of a personal receptionist at a fraction of the cost. They offer fully customizable scripts and call handling experiences to fit your business needs and fit seamlessly in with your brand. PatLive is more than just an answering service. Whether you need assistance on nights and weekends, overflow call handling, or full coverage, PatLive has you covered. They offer everything from message taking, call screening and transfers to lead collection, appointment scheduling, order processing, and so much more. According to business.com, PatLive is the best answering service for small businesses in 2020. With PatLive's virtual receptionist, you can turn more callers into customers Take better care of your clients and improve your team's ability to focus and be productive. And now, for a limited time only, Pat Live is offering listeners of this podcast 15% off their regularly listed rates. This offer is only available over the phone, so give them a call now at 866 708 2507. That's 866 708 2507 and mention this podcast for more information or visit patlive.com. Make every call count with Pat Live. I'm really curious how if you measure this, and I'm sure you have, but the correlation or maybe there's a causation between work and home. And like if you're happy at home, but not happy at work, do those tie in together? Like, I guess, are they mutually exclusive, meaning if you're miserable at work, you're going to be miserable at home too, or vice versa? What have you seen? Basically, it's a technique we call "statistic," which is domains, where we're looking at different domains of life. And
1: it's a very classic way of looking at quality of life and well-being. And we always see what we call spillover effects, which is where the experience from one domain spills over into another. So, you know, if you're very unhappy at home, you're going to bring some of that unhappiness to work but there was some independence too. And, you know, for me, as a sort of personal story, I mean, I'm a 50-year-old man and I've been divorced and I had a situation where I was very unhappy at home and I was very happy at work. And actually that the fact that I was functional, happy at work, kind of gave me the confidence that I could be happy. I perhaps wanted to have a better relationship because, you know, I wasn't able to fix that one. That gave me confidence. But of course, you know, it probably was slightly affecting my work, but I don't know. So there's some independence and of course, organizations you know what goes the other way is people take their stress home that you know if they're very stressed at work they take it home and of course so those spillovers do happen and I think from an organization you do you obviously want to benefit from people's happiness in their life and then bring it from home but you also need to be very careful that you don't make too much stress for them to take home and that's the sort of ethical boundary between work and life is one of those spillover effects and it's partly why i actually get quite interested in looking at the quality of people's weeks it's why we call friday pulse week we ask people at the end of the week how was their week because i kind of think it's worse to go home stressed on a friday than it is a tuesday absolutely yeah two days at home <laughs> yeah you have got two days at home if you go home stressed on a tuesday you probably sleep on it and you wake up on wednesday can fix the problem from work whereas friday you've got to wake till on monday and this and that so actually helping people sort of get their work done in their week and be able to go home clean is sort of, I think, an ethical commitment, I think, should be from employers.
0: You're a statistician, and I'm curious what areas of happiness you measure. So if organizations are using your tool, Friday Pulse, what areas are you measuring to... And maybe you've had iterations of this over the years to develop the tool. I'm really curious how you do it. There's definitely been iterations. It's, maybe it's a trade secret. <laughs> maybe you don't want to share. <laughs> it's not a trade secret. It's
1: not a trade secret. As a statistician, you know, when I started out in my career, I wanted to do very complicated statistics. You want to kind of know everything. (laughs) So you ask lots of questions. Every variable imaginable. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, this is actually a trap that a lot of staff surveys fall into, that they ask sort of 60, 80 questions because they want to know every angle on it. And actually, one is I know that respondents get really fatigued going through a long survey and the quality of data drops as you go further down the survey. So they start off a bit enthusiastic gets about question 42 and let's start drifting away. <laughs> That's a problem of quality of data, but it's also just a mistake to think that you can do that because at the center of every statistical data set on people's experience of life, their well-being, their happiness is what I call a good-bad signal, which is, is it going well or not? You can look at the statistics; It's called a factor structure, but it's the data, how it hangs together. And I started to realize that actually what I really needed was a strong outcome variable. And then you could look at what the drivers of that outcome variable were. And the outcome variable we use is how have you felt at work this week, you know, from unhappy to happy. That actually is what we're trying to, I'm going to say this carefully, optimize because you don't want to maximize it. Because if you're always happy, you're actually missing negative signals, but you want to have people have a lot more good weeks than they have bad weeks. And then everything that we do on our platform is about improving the quality of people's weekly experience of work we do ask more questions in there about the drivers. So I don't know, you're probably familiar in your listeners, perhaps with Gallup's Q12 engagement survey. Basically, what they ask in that is about processes that they suggest lead towards engagement. And in many ways, engagement is a code word for productivity. And so they're looking to improve the productivity, the performance of the organization. These are the behaviors that we know in individuals lead to that. But they don't actually have an outcome measure. They have these process measures. So when they measure engagement, they've got 12 questions. Maybe they use more sometimes, but they basically draw a big bell curve of the distribution. They say, if you score over this, you're engaged. If you're this, you're moderate. If this, you're disengaged. I don't really know if that's true. And I also don't know quite what engagement is. You know, if you ask people, how engaged are you at work? They don't really know how to answer that question. So I find it a sort of messy construct. I find it messily measured, messily defined. Whereas if you ask people, how you felt at work this week or how happy you worked this week people can give you that answer because that taps into that strong good bad signal that they know about their work and it's actually very much a part of the way our emotions work as an organism you know the first duty of an emotion a duty is to tell us is it safe where we're going you know should we approach a void and that's where the whole positive negative emotions good bad comes you know we get it when we meet someone for the first time, friend or foe. That signal is very strong in us. And we know that about our experience. We can say it was a good experience, it was a bad one. And so that signal is very easy to capture. The reasons for why it's good or bad, why we're happy or not, are much more complicated. But we know how we are. and So when we're creating indicators for organizations, we structure everything around the idea that the organization wants a good, bad signal. They want to know which teams are doing well, which are struggling. How can they identify them straight away, and, you know, weekly, monthly, whatever it is. And then, okay, right, how do we improve that? And then we get into more detailed statistics or actually processes often.
0: That's so profound. I think most people do these surveys of happiness to always be happy or to showcase how happy they are. There's like PR awards, and they do it for all the wrong reasons versus you were just talking about the, like the negative signal is important. You don't want them muted because you need to know that there's improvement to be made. And if you can't figure out those negative signals, of why people might be unhappy. How do you even build happiness programs within your employees to make them happier and improve? Because I don't know, without that, how do you ever get to the root cause of why people might be unhappy, right?
1: Yeah, it is dysfunctional to be happy all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, and actually, I'm a really positive guy. And the problems I've got myself into life have been over optimism, why I override negative signals because I want to look on the bright side and I've had to learn as I've matured to listen to those signals more. It's just the same in a system. It's unrealistic to think that everyone's happy all the time. you know you want to have a good strong set of relationships you want to have robust teams that can bounce back and I actually think that how you observe resilience in a system is that you measure that team morale employee well-being every week you see it dip and you see people bounce back. And that is resilience. And we've seen it across every one of our clients over the last six weeks. Huge dip. Some bounce back, variable to bounce back across organizations and also variable through time. I was feeling quite confident in my team and how they were doing. Then this week, they started to drop again. And that was because probably these cumulative effects of people with younger children. And so we actually had a long discussion this morning about what was going on for everybody and what could we do to help each other and how we were in the same boat and going to get through we probably won't bounce straight back to where we are because it's just so pervasive what's going on
0: yeah i'm really curious like what could drive happiness at work and what organizations leaders can do to help improve the happiness and it sounds like sometimes measuring it and then having a dialogue with your people about like hey what's going on what can i do to make your week a little bit better because i think you know a lot of folks probably thought like oh it's just give them some perks and benefits and that'll drive some happiness. But it doesn't sound like that's true. It sounds like it's probably less obvious and deeper in connection and purpose and things like that. There's some things which are about
1: sort of weekly process and sort of where you're experiencing your work very proximally, which is you know mainly about team relationships and how you get on with your line manager and your colleagues. But then there's five, what we talk about five big ways to positive experience, happiness at work. And they are connect, which is relationships and how well you get on with your colleagues and between teams. The second one is being fair, which is that humans are, we're explicitly attuned to injustices. And it makes us very angry when things don't feel fair. And in fact, it's one of the fastest moving emotions anger. You know, if you see a colleague treated unfairly, you feel angry on their behalf pretty much instantly. If they do something brilliant, you feel a little bit happy for them, but not quite, you know, <laughs> whereas the anger goes very quickly. Fairness is sort of what we call a deficit need, which is that if it isn't there, you don't get to the table, but you sort of can't over satisfied if you go to me the third one is empower daniel pink would call this autonomy but you know it's basically being able to influence the decisions, shape your work use your strengths be yourself the fourth is to challenge which is about sort of personal development it's about stretch it's about learning creativity people love challenge it's a sort of misunderstanding to think that people want to do nothing and be happy that you're not we're bored a bit of stretch is great for us and the fifth is inspire which is into that as you say meaning and purpose What's our higher goals? What's the organization's purpose? You know, do we feel a sense of that we're getting a sense of accomplishment and doing worthwhile work? So those five big things connect, be fair, empower, challenge, inspire, the big drivers. And those are both experienced at a local level, but they tend to be across the whole organization. They can be across sectors. You know, we see, for example, you know, that people in advertising can often feel that they're really empowered, challenged, they've got great colleagues, but they kind of feel in spas not there necessarily whereas in not-for-profits the inspires there massively but they might not be treated fairly or something else you know so you can see these different sort of fingerprints across sectors as well
0: as people are sitting in sort of isolation right now and they're working from home and they're probably in their heads quite a bit are there any questions that people can ask themselves about their own happiness or just to get themselves thinking about, okay, what drives my happiness? Is there anything that you recommend for individuals? I think that's where reflection and that sort of that. So just the
1: very asking of the question. is actually a question we don't ask ourselves very much, or, you know, people don't ask themselves very much, don't reflect on it. And that negativity bias that comes in, as we said earlier, from the media and from the world outside that we can stop and This is, you know, the foundation of exercises like gratitude, diaries and things like that is at the end of the day or the end of the week, sitting down and thinking, you know, what's gone well, because, you know, what hasn't gone well can be quite foreground for us. Yeah. And we can forget what's gone well and and what we're grateful for. And, you know, I mean, this is the foundation of good relationships. Relationships can drift away from us because we don't appreciate each other enough. But, you know, whether that's, you know, our intimate relationships, our friendships or Family or work, whatever. So it's actually taking time. And so I've seen this massively, not only just sort of in friends, but in our data is that people are really reaching out and thanking each other. So part of our weekly flow of questions as we ask people, they've got anyone they want to thank at work. And in the week where people's well being collapsed, actually thank you notes went up doubled. And I think it's like as we sort of struggle, we notice who's supporting us more and we thank them all. That's a sort of natural process. But I think it's, How do we make those processes more part of our daily rhythm? Let's not just appreciate people when we're struggling. Let's appreciate them when we're doing okay. It's that reflective process. and The therapeutic process is a weekly ritual. There's a very strong rhythm to therapy. I mean, most people it's weekly. Some people do it more, some people do it less. But it's that continual learning process, that commitment to it. And it builds over time, that therapeutic process, that counseling, that reflective process. So Anything that builds on that journaling is really good if you like that. Even actually, little simple things I see my teens using TikTok. Yeah. And it's funny. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, TikTok. And of course, they mainly do it like, you know, my two stepkids who live with us at the moment, they were having a battle who would get the most views. And you know, <laughs> one of them got 140,000 views on something.
0: Wow. That's, that's great. And
1: they were really excited. But I see people journaling themselves on TikTok. You know, this is my week. This is what's happened. And, and you maybe you won't get many views but that process of sort of weekly reflection daily reflection i think is the main thing we can do individually
0: i love it nick i have really appreciated this conversation it's really just nice to talk about happiness and how we can be happier and all that and i know you're doing some really cool stuff during this crisis with friday pulse but can you talk about that before we part ways
1: yeah so friday pulse is a third iteration of product i've tried to create in this area and i've actually the last one i stopped because i didn't like it enough and i absolutely loved it <laughs> so i decided if i was going to have to go out and sort of shout about it i really want to love our products i wasn't going to cope with a mediocre one it's built around a weekly pulse we ask you how you were, and we were just coming to market with it really we've been working with clients about two or three years with it and then this hits and so we just decided well let's just make it a free platform for three months for anybody that wants to use it through this crisis we've got an upper limit of thousand people in an organization but That covers most people. And you can just sign up and use it for your team in your organization. And we're actually having a really good response to that. It feels like it's what we can do. I mean, there's obviously a hit to our cash flow, but we'll take that. Let's go through this together. And if people find it useful, I trust they'll become clients later. That's the main thing that we're doing. And then, you know, I'm just trying to offer tips each week. I write tips each week and write a blog article each week about happiness or We're talking a lot about team morale and resilience. It's the same measure, but really we're trying to get to the quality of people's experience. We're doing things like releasing a resilience calculator, which will show you, you know, if you don't look after team morale, how much more you might lose this year. I'm trying to create things that help people really pay attention to employee experience because for me, that's the stuff of life really is our experience. So, you know, I'd like people to have better experiences in this world while we're here and work. We spend a lot of time at work. So improving people's work experience seems a really valid thing to do.
0: Nick Marks, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks very much indeed.